Good morning. Before you're seated, we are going to um, read our passage for today. And uh, it's Matthew 6, 9 through 13. If you want to turn there in your Bible, it'll be on the screen behind me. Um, We don't normally read it all together, but since it's the Lord's Prayer, why don't you read it with me this morning? Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we'll stop there, and I'll tell you why in just a few minutes. But uh, this is the Lord, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I just realized when we got to the end, you might launch into that next part, so I didn't know what to do. Uh, Today, uh, we're going to be looking specifically at verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But before we jump into that, I want to share with you something that is on my heart. Two weeks ago on Sunday evening, we had an event here called On Healthy Sexuality. We had two guest speakers, Michael and Rachel Blackston, and they talked about God's design for sex and sexuality. And it wasn't just a marriage seminar. It wasn't just for married people because we are all, whether we're single or married or divorced or widowed, we are all human beings created in the image of God. And part of his good design is we were created with sexuality, but as we talk about how to pursue God's design for healthy sexuality, we're confronted with our own sexual brokenness, and this can stir up lots of emotions. For the last portion of the evening, we had Q&A, and you anonymously submitted over 50 questions, and in about 45 minutes' time, we obviously did not have time to get to all of the questions. But as the pastors and elders and I have read through these questions, um, it's apparent that there are many among us who are hurting, who are confused, who are lonely. There are marriages that are struggling. And um, I want to first and foremost say to you, I hear you. And um, your elders, your pastors specifically want you to know we hear you. We are praying for you. Um, If you go to um, orangewood.org slash on series, you'll find some care options. Um, You can connect with a counselor We have resources, um, some having to do with sexuality, some having to do with relationships. Um, We have a broad spectrum of resources. You can ask uh, for a one-on-one meeting with a leader, but um, there's one specific um, immediate thing that I want to point you to if um, you feel like this is something that you want to delve into more 
and I want to say we know that this conversation isn't over and we're praying about how to best answer these questions and care for you, but there's one immediate thing that I'd point you to. If you've not taken the time to look at your own life story and how it affects the way you relate to God and to others, I would highly encourage you to stay after worship and go to the lunch where Betsy Page and Jordan Carr will tell you about a small group that they're leading where you can start to explore your story. Um, Betsy and Jordan are friends of mine. Uh, They're not just some random people. They lead these groups at our sister PCA church, Christ Community Church in Titusville. Um, It's going to be right here after church in room 260 above the children's hall. And you may think, why do I need to go to a lunch to hear about it? I'll just show up to the group if I want to. Um, But we want you to hear from Betsy and Jordan first because this group will require some commitment. And I want you to count the cost and get a vision for what it's going to be like because space is limited. If you're seriously interested in this but can't stay for the lunch, um, shoot me an email and I will talk to you about it. But whether you do this group or not, I believe that if you engage in this kind of story work, it will change your life. And you may think, what does this have to do with sexuality? Um, And I would just say, A, it's not a group where we talk about sexuality the whole time, so don't let that freak you out. But uh, anything looking at our own story and how we relate to others is going to be integrally related to our sexuality and how we relate to God and others. Okay, so um, that's what I wanted to say to you about that. And now I'm going to transition to Matthew 6, 13. But first, will you pray with me? Father, it is good to be here. We need you. We cannot do this on our own. We need your word. We need your spirit. We need your presence. And I thank you that we have all of these things. I pray that you would be near the brokenhearted this morning. I pray to anyone who doesn't know you that you would introduce yourself to them this morning. And we pray all these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So uh, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with martial arts. Uh, Throwing stars, nunchucks, Bruce Lee movies, Karate Kid, part one and two, Karate Kid, the Nintendo game, which was really hard, Um, all of it. Plus, I was obsessed with Batman. Batman studied martial arts, so I wanted to study martial arts. I wanted to take either karate or taekwondo because... In Tennessee, you know, 30 years ago, that's what you could take. Um, But my mom wouldn't let me. And frankly, I think it's because I was, no, it's hard for you to believe now, but I was a pretty small kid. And and I was kind of a wuss. And I think she was scared that I'd get beat up. And she's probably watching this morning. And so I want to say, Mom, I love you. But maybe if you'd let me take martial arts, I wouldn't have been such a wuss. (laughs) but in college I got the chance to take karate for a semester um, as a phys ed credit and it ended up 
kind of be in like one of those timeshare meetings because we didn't find out until the end of the class. You don't actually get to like test and like go for a better belt unless you sign up with the local dojo and it's like what poor college kid has money and time to go like take karate lessons. So I will forever be a white belt, but nonetheless, <laughs> I took karate and I learned how to kick and a punch and how to punch and I learned a few katas, which basically means that if I had gotten into a fight, I could have done a really slow, awkward dance. <laughs> um, and toward the end of the semester, we started learning how to block. And uh, I, I remember one of the last days of the class, the instructor explained that blocking a punch or a kick is good because um, it protects your, your head and your core and it absorbs some of that blow. But he told us it's far better to dodge a blow. So the last day of class, when he's telling us the best thing to do is to dodge, he gives us like a five minute lesson on how to dodge. But he said, you can only block a few times before it'll wear you down and maybe even break your arm or leg if you're in a serious fight. And I'll never forget, he said, the best thing is not to be there. So you can do this and this, but the best thing is not to be there. And I've often thought about this as a metaphor for temptation to sin. If you think about it, if I'm a recovering drug addict and I'm going to be around a bunch of my old friends, I can resist temptation for a while, but when there's a New Year's Eve party and I know I'm going to be around people doing stuff for hours on end, when I'm tired and my guard is down, it's probably better not to be there. And sometimes we know when temptation is coming and we can avoid it, but other times we're blindsided by it. Um, I think that's most often when we fall into temptation. So maybe this is what Jesus was getting at when he said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's better not to be there. For the past few weeks, we've been going through the Lord's Prayer, um, which is the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And today we've come to verse 13, which marks the end of the Lord's Prayer in our Bibles. And this may be confusing. In fact, you may be confused that we didn't add some stuff when we were reading the Scripture to begin with, because we've gotten accustomed to, after we say verse 13, we say, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For me, I always say forever and ever, amen. Maybe I just like that Randy Travis song. I'm not sure, but that's what I always say. But you probably, if you're looking in your Bible, you probably have a footnote in your Bible that says that some manuscripts include that line. And that line is called a doxology, which just means a word of praise to God. And in Jesus' day, first century, second century, around then, it was a Jewish practice back then to end every prayer with a doxology. So this doxology um, that we often say is not found in any Greek manuscripts of Matthew before the fifth century. So most scholars say it probably wasn't part of the original text, but it probably did begin very early in the church. I want you to listen to something here. In 1 Chronicles 29, King David prayed before the assembly when Solomon, his son, was anointed as king. And this is what he said. He prayed, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, 
For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. So I'm sure you can see the similarities between 1 Chronicles 29 and the doxology that we normally pray at the end of the Lord's Prayer. So what I want you to hear is we don't need to feel conflicted about praying the doxology because it is utterly true and it all comes from Scripture. And even if the son of David didn't teach his disciples to pray this, King David did, and it's a good prayer. Uh, So probably wasn't in the original manuscript, but there's nothing wrong with praying it. With that said, we're going to focus on Matthew verses. Uh, chapter 6, verse 13, where Jesus prays to the Father that he would not lead us into temptation. And if you think about this very much at all, it sort of poses a problem. We have to ask, is Jesus insinuating that God leads people into temptation? And if he is, first of all, that doesn't sound good, right? Who wants to serve a God who says, don't sin, and then leads you into temptation? But also it poses a problem scripturally because Jesus is directly contradicting what his brother James will later write. James 1.13 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That last verse is worth an entire sermon, but we're not going to do that today. The Greek word translated as temptation is pereismos. Um, you don't need to remember that. I just wanted to sound smart. But that's the, that's the Greek word. And it can also be translated as testing. You may remember the story in Genesis 22 when God calls Abraham to sacrifice his only son. And I want to say, if you are not familiar with this story, it sounds awful, but it has a happy ending. Because Abraham, when he lifts the knife to take his son's life, the angel of the Lord stops Abraham and actually provides a sacrifice and spares Abraham's only son. And the beauty of this story is that God would never actually ask someone to sacrifice his only son. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Amen? But in Genesis 22, 1, where this story happens... You'll see it begins by saying, God tested Abraham. And the Greek translation of Genesis here uses peresmos, that same word in Matthew 6, 13. Uh, So we have to realize that when Jesus prays, lead us not into temptation, it has a broader range of meaning than what we might normally think of in the English. So maybe Jesus was saying something more like, Father, lead us not into testing or into trials. That's more likely what he was saying. But then that poses a problem too, because scripture makes it pretty clear that we will be tested. We will undergo trials. Again, Jesus' brother James writes in James 1, 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter, Beloved, do not be surprised as the fiery trial when it, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter and James are saying, we will be tested and we will be tempted because actually testing can be a good thing. Back when I was taking karate in college, I probably wouldn't have learned my katas of the instructor showed them to us and then just said, mess around with those if you want to. I learned the katas because I was tested on them. I had to practice them a lot. And testing teaches us how to apply what we learn and to grow from it. But even though we know it helps us learn, no one likes tests. Peter and James didn't say, pray, bring it on God, bring on the temptation. Even Jesus in the garden before he was betrayed prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. So when Jesus teaches us to pray, he gives us the permission to ask our Father to lead us not into testing and temptation. But when our Father does allow us to go through times of testing, he never tempts us in the sense of luring us to sin. When we pray, lead us not into temptation, the point is not that God tempts us. The point is that God leads us. God leads us. We spent last summer in Psalm 23, and we learned that even though the good shepherd leads us, he may lead us straight into the valley of the shadow of death, right? And though he prepares a table before you, your enemies are right there. But we don't have to fear evil. Not because evil doesn't exist, not because we evade it, or if we are followers of Jesus, we just get a free pass. But Psalm 23 says, I will fear no evil, for you are what? For you are with me. We have to talk about evil, but what is most important is that Jesus, the one who teaches you this prayer, is with you always, even to the end of the age. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I took my two-year-old son, Jude, uh, to my barber to get a haircut. And he's had a little trim before, but this was his first, like, real big boy haircut. Um, and do we have a picture of Jude, just so everybody can, yeah. Um, so just taking that look on his face. Jude makes noises and babbles and sings all the time when he's at home. Every morning, earlier than we want to be awake, he wakes Brandy and me up by making high-pitched animal noises as he gets into the bed every single morning. But when Jude got, into, got onto the little booster seat in Mr. David's barber chair, um, he didn't make a peep. He didn't smile. He didn't talk. He didn't move until the clippers came on because Jude doesn't like loud noises at all. When he hears a loud noise, he covers his ears and goes, too wild. But he was too, too afraid even to say that. 
he was kind of petrified. Um, Mr. David, my barber, really good with kids. You should go see him. But uh, he was showing him the clippers and explaining, hey, man, they're not going to hurt you. Look, they don't hurt. But you just didn't understand. So when the clippers came near his head, he'd close his eyes and he'd pull his head away. And as you know, when someone's trying to use clippers on your head, the last thing you want to do is pull your head away. So the way we got through it is I had to bend down so that Jude could see my face. He was looking down, so I had to get way down and get in his level. And I had to get him to look at me, and I put my hand on his face, and I said, I'm right here. I'm right here, buddy. It's not going to hurt you. You're a big boy. I'm so proud of you. I'm not going to let it hurt you. I'm right here. When we pray, lead us not into temptation, our eyes are on the one who leads us. His hand is on your face. He's kneeling to look in your eye. I'm right here. I'm right here. I know it's scary, but I'm right here. Even though we're free to ask, there are times when we aren't spared from the trial, like you know, sometimes you got to take your little kid to Dr. Gamicha. It's the scariest thing ever. Scary even as an adult. But on our best days, we realize that we can't fight this fight on our own strength. And so we pray to our Father who is with us, deliver us from evil. And in your Bible, if you're looking in your Bible, you've got a footnote there by the word evil that says, or the evil one. Because we can translate this either deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. Um, Jesus probably had both of these in mind, but I'll, I'll say a bit about both. If God taught us to pray for protection from the evil one, we have to acknowledge that the evil one exists. And I realize that to some it sounds anti-intellectual to talk about Satan or the devil or an actual enemy. But in scripture, both good and evil are fundamentally personal. They're not just these inanimate forces. God is personal goodness. Satan is personal evil. And Jesus takes the evil one very seriously. In John 8, he says that he is the father of lies. And in John 10, he says the evil one comes only to steal and kill and destroy. If we have a real enemy that comes to destroy, then I want you to think strategically. What does the evil one hate? What is in the crosshairs of the evil one? The church, your marriage, meaningful friendships, people growing in intimacy with Jesus, the spread of the gospel. These are things that Satan, who is a real personal force, hates. So if you follow Jesus, expect the crosshairs of the evil one to be on those targets. Why is marriage so hard? Because it's a big flashing arrow pointing to Jesus and his love for the church. So the enemy wants your marriage to be cold and distant. 
The enemy wants your marriage to be anything but something that glorifies God. He wants to muddy the reputation of the gospel. He wants you to believe that your spouse is the enemy. He wants you to think things like, if she would just quit doing this, if he would only do this, he wants you to see the person that God has put in your life as your helpmate. He wants you to see them as the enemy. It's like, uh, I don't know if you ever saw The Usual Suspects. It was one of my favorite movies back in the day, but there was this guy named Kaiser Soze, and he said the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. We should be wise and informed about Satan, but we don't need to fear him. Satan and God are opposites, but they're far from equals because Satan is a false god. He is a creature in rebellion against the creator, but he is cunning. So we pray to our father, deliver us from the evil one. We all need this. When I pray the Lord's Prayer, sometimes I ask God to deliver me from the evil one, and sometimes I pray that he will deliver me from evil. Here's why. Sometimes I'm very aware that I have a real personal enemy. I'm aware that there is so much evil in the world. Um, Satan, the evil one, he uses internal and external temptation. He uses the allure of the world He uses the allure of our own selfish desires. So when I pray for the deliverance from the evil one, I'm thinking mostly of temptation to sin. And nine nine times out of ten, I'm praying things like, help me not to be a grumpy jerk to my wife when I'm tired. But when I pray over my family, my wife and my kids, and I'm praying the Lord's Prayer, I usually pray, deliver us from evil rather than deliver us from the evil one. Um, Whichever way we translate this, most commentaries leave this in the realm of morality and temptation to sin. But when I pray, I'm also praying that God will protect my family from evil people and actions directed toward us. Because when I think of evil more broadly, I think of people who would abuse or exploit my family. I think of spiritual attack If we're tested the way James and Peter talk about it, it will eventually lead to our growth. It will actually draw us closer to Jesus. But when I pray for God's protection from evil, I think of the sorts of trials that tear people down rather than leading to growth. I want the Lord to spare my children having to walk through those things because life is hard enough without having to navigate being the victim of evil. Like abuse, like slander, like betrayal, things like that. But here's what I want to encourage you to do today. Don't say the Lord's Prayer. Try to actually pray the Lord's Prayer. If you mindlessly rattle off the Lord's Prayer, it's really no different than my four-year-old daughter rattling off the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, Going off my notes, but I just have to tell you this because it's funny. 
Um, every she's learning at at MCP, which this is a great plug for MCP. She learned so much from MCP, um, and this is not MCP's fault. This is a, a four-year-old girl distorting things in her mind. But she always play, um, says the Pledge of Allegiance to the Republic of Winter Springs. <laughs> um, so, and I, and she, but that okay. I, let's say that was in my notes. It illustrates the point. She has no idea what she's saying. She's just rattling some things off. There's a way in which we can pray the Lord's Prayer, and we might as well be saying the Republic of Winter Springs, right? But the Lord's Prayer becomes something more when you actually pray it, when you make it your own. So I want you to think, how can I make this prayer my own? Even if you just take one phrase, how can I pray this and make it my own? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What does this mean to you when you say it? I'm not trying to suggest that we just twist Jesus' words to mean whatever we want, but I am suggesting you actually pray in a way that you can mean what you pray. So I've told you some things that are not absolutely clear about Matthew 6.13. Is it temptation? Is it testing and trials? Um, is it evil? Is it the evil one? Could be either. But I want to end by telling you what is absolutely clear. Because we have an enemy who hates the hope that we have as followers of Jesus, we should expect the crosshairs of the evil one to be on us. We should expect that both temptations and trials will come our way. In John 16, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, when Jesus is spending his last moments with his followers before he knows that he's going to be arrested and he knows that they're going to scatter and fear and run the risk of forgetting everything, but one of the last things he tells them is, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. They needed to hear that because just hours later, it was not going to look like Jesus had overcome the world. If you think the gospel means you won't suffer, you'll constantly be frustrated. You'll constantly feel angry at God. But the truth is, he cares far more about you than your stuff Testing and trials draw us closer to him. And we don't have to fear evil. We fear God and ask him to deliver us from evil. I want you to be encouraged by Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation... He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In God's mercy, he will provide a way out when we are tempted or tested. But I also want you to see that right before Paul says this, read verse 12, it comes right before it. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. 
friends, we cannot do this on our own strength. The point is that we're all vulnerable and no one can do this on their own. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that you do not have to because Jesus is always with you when you're being tested, when you're being tempted, when you're in the valley of the shadow of death, when fear surrounds you, he is kneeling down, looking into your downcast eyes saying, I'm right here, I'm right here. The good news of the gospel is that you're never alone. So Jesus teaches us to pray to our Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you that you are always with us. Thank you that you mean good for us, even amidst fear, even amidst temptation and trials. Lord, we try again and again to do this on our own strength. And we never can. Thank you that we don't have to remind us daily to lean on you. Teach us how to pray, not just say the Lord's Prayer, but pray it and mean it. And we ask all these things in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen.